The following message is by Pastor Steve Clark of the Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City. More information is available at our website, www.slcevfree.org. A couple of verses. Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son that the Son may glorify you since you have given him authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all whom you have given him. Verse 6. I have manifested your name to the people whom you gave me out of the world. Yours they were, and you gave them to me, and they have kept your word. Let's pray. Father, you recorded for us these words that Jesus prayed to teach us, to show us something of him and something of you and of your working and something of our place. As we think about them and how they connect to the passage that we'll study today in Luke, would you cause us to think clearly and and to think sweetly and to think in submission to phrases like those who were yours, those whom you gave to the Son, those to whom he manifested you, your name, your presence. You are a God who reveals and who has revealed yourself in Christ. And we say thank you for being a people that you chose to reveal yourself to, to peel back our blinders and show us him, him who is our treasure. Thank you. To cause us to think well about that, to think clearly about that, And to realize that that you are a God who is good. You are a God who pursues people and and seeks out people who uh, who are in fact running from you. Thank you for pursuing us and capturing us and showing us Jesus, this Savior. And will you then empower us, move us to as that last phrase in Jesus' prayer that said to be a people who keep your word. Move us to be a people who keep your word and move us in the right way. Don't, don't move us with a whip. That's how so often we think of you. We don't say that because it's not right, but we think of you like that often. But I pray that you would move us and you would make us aware that you're moving us promise and with sweet inducement, with lure, not a lure that is deceptive, but a lure that is actually wonderfully true. You promise us life, and you invite us to come take it along the path of obedience to you, along the path of surrender, the path of laying down our life where we would find it. This is, this is your approach to us all throughout the Gospel of Luke, and we see it again in the passage today. Would you please, Father, press it home to us by your Spirit that this people here, that this church, would be moved to follow your decrees. In sweet joy, because we're following our treasure, Jesus. So help us with that this morning. Father, by your Spirit, own this time. Make the word clear. Help us to listen well. Help me to speak well. And 
build up your people for our good and for your glory. Thank you, Father, Son, and Spirit. Amen. Turn our attention this morning to the beginning of Luke chapter 19. Last week, as we finished chapter 18, we considered the issue of spiritual blindness, something that affects all people, all of us, to, to varying degrees. We all are fallen in sin, and we therefore are inclined to see things incorrectly, to not understand what's going on, spiritually speaking, to misunderstand God and ourselves and what God is doing in and around us and in the world. So... This was the case first, as we saw in the 12 disciples. Jesus restated for them the prophesied events surrounding the cross and resurrection that's coming right up. He's about to enter into Jerusalem and face all these things, and he, he describes them as prophesied in the Old Testament, and they heard him speak in their own language, but they didn't get it. They didn't really grasp what he was saying. They missed it. Nonetheless, Jesus was determined to accomplish it all, all for the sake of saving us, even while we were yet unaware of our need. He did it. And our response then afterwards, and as believers every day, it is to be one of turning to him and what he's accomplished, turning to him in faith and asking him to give us sight, to give us maybe sight for the first time, if we hear and understand and begin to see a little bit, to say, Lord, help, give me more sight, or day by day by day, Lord, help me to see. That's the response of the blind beggar sitting by the road. The second part of last week's passage. He's sitting there on the road that leads into Jericho, blocked by crowds, wanting to see, knowing something of Jesus, knowing that he's the one who can give him sight, he is blind. He knows something of his power, of his goodness, of his, of his compassion, of his willingness, and so he calls out to him, Lord, have mercy on me. Son of David, have mercy on me. That's his cry. He turns to Jesus in faith, and Jesus responds by giving him sight. So what we're to see there is that this turn to Jesus in faith is what gives us sight. It, it is the Spirit of God moves into us, presses into us, change grows up in us, maturity, understanding, gives life to the, the mind of Christ that is in us. That was last week's passage brings us to today with another man on a road in Jericho who wants to see, but is at first blocked by crowds. Zacchaeus, the tax collector. As we consider verses 1 to 10 this morning, you're going to notice a lot here that you're already familiar with, not just because this is sung in every vacation Bible school there ever was, but also because this story is sitting in a place and doing something in Luke that is a bit like summary. This is at the very end. We're, we're at the end of this long section of journey. You'll recall maybe back in chapter 9 where we saw Jesus set his face towards Jerusalem. All the way back in chapter 9. So since then, he's been on his way to this chapter. Here in chapter 19 is the triumphal entry in a couple weeks. He arrives in Jerusalem, and we find the last week of his life, the cross. He's been journeying towards this for a long time now. And so, 
what this passage, this passage right here is kind of in a way pulling forward many things that we've seen, many characters and many events and many teachings. They, they find some summary here or some contrast or some comparison. And we're not going to deal with all of them, but there are a lot of them here. A tax collector, again. Grumbling crowds, again. Curiosity about Jesus and wealth and giving and joy and faith and seeking Jesus and seeking the lost. These are all themes that we've seen before and they kind of come all present in this story. I'm only going to touch on a couple of them this morning. A couple that I think are probably the most important. We've seen them before, but we see them again, particularly in Zacchaeus here in this story of how Jesus interacts with him. So let me read the passage. This is verses 1 to 10, and then I'll make two observations from it. Luke 19, beginning verse 1. He entered Jericho and was passing through, and there was a man named Zacchaeus. He was a chief tax collector and was rich. And he was seeking to see who Jesus was, but on account of the crowd he could not because he was small of stature. So he ran on ahead and climbed up into a sycamore tree to see him, for he was about to pass that way. And when Jesus came to the place, he looked up and said to him, Zacchaeus, hurry and come down, for I must stay at your house today. So he hurried and came down and received him joyfully. And when they saw it, they all grumbled. He has gone in to be the guest of a man who is a sinner. And Zacchaeus stood and said to the Lord, Behold, Lord, the half of my goods I give to the poor. And if I have defrauded anyone of anything, I restore it fourfold. And Jesus said to him, Today salvation has come to this house, since he also is a son of Abraham. For the Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. Luke 19. Two observations. Here's the first one. God sent his Son to seek and save all of Abraham's lost sons. God sent his Son to seek and save all of Abraham's lost sons. Obviously, this sentence is drawn from Jesus' concluding statement in verses 9 and 10. And, and when you see red ink at the end of a passage, Jesus speaking, you realize this is the main thing we're supposed to get here. This, is, this demands our attention. It's about the Son of Man, Jesus, come to seek and save. But initially, it might not seem that way because it seems that Zacchaeus is the one doing the seeking. Verse 2 he was seeking to see who Jesus was, Zacchaeus. Which is a bit more than just saying he was seeking to see Jesus. This is a little bit of wanting to check him out in it. He wants to, to catch some kind of glimpse of so that he can figure out what is this. I've heard, he's clearly heard about him. He's, he's known the stories, he's heard some of the teachings probably, but he wants to kind of evaluate him, to see who he is. He's checking him out, seeking him. But he can't because of the crowd. He doesn't give up. He persists, runs ahead, climbs into a tree. Zacchaeus is indeed seeking in a way that we are often urged to. Not just a, if he happens to stumble my way, I'll take a look. But he goes and he persists and he goes. 
we are encouraged as people, one of the things that Luke constantly urges on us is seek him. If you hear something about Jesus, if, if something intrigues you about him, if you're wondering, if you, you catch some glimpse, the right answer always is go to him. Turn to him. And today, obviously, we don't do that physically, but we do it in the scriptures. This is where God presents the Son to us. So we seek him in the scriptures, and we are to seek him prayerfully and thoughtfully. Who are you? What is this? That's Zacchaeus. That's to be us. That's appropriate. But behind that human seeking is, in fact, the seeking of God in Christ. Like a shepherd looking for lost sheep, or a woman looking for a lost coin. Remember the parables in Luke 15. God has a seeking attitude, a seeking and searching and pursuing heart, and it first shows up in Jesus' statement in verse 5. He stopped at the tree. Now remember, the setting here, you've got to picture this, there, there are big crowds lining the street, so big that he can't see through them. There's a lot going on. There's probably noise. There's hustle and bustle. And Jesus stops at a tree, looks up, speaks to the random guy perched there, a stranger, and he calls him by name, Zacchaeus. That's interesting. You can imagine sitting there saying, me? You know my name, Zacchaeus? Yeah, you. Hurry and come down, for I must stay. I must remain at your house today. Out of the blue, Jesus invites himself over for the night. And, and it may be a little bit longer because the word remain there, it, it's at least for the night, but it could be, it's often used for a little bit longer period of time. He might be coming as a house guest. This is Zacchaeus' place. Hurry, come down. I'm staying with you tonight. And actually he says more than I'm just staying I must stay. It is necessary. And this language shows up in the Bible. It's the language of divine necessity. It has to be this way according to the plan of God. In the plan of God, it is necessary that I stay with you. I've been assigned lodging at your house tonight. Unbeknownst to you. I'm coming over. I have to. That's, that's God initiating. That's God seeking out this Zacchaeus out of the blue, un, unbeknownst to him. That's God in Christ pursuing. Hurry and come down, he says. And so he does. He hurries and comes down and receives Jesus into his home joyfully. And verse 9, salvation comes to this house, Jesus says. For he also is a son of Abraham. Notice that little phrase there. He also is a son of Abraham. Because there we have the why. Why is this? Because he's a son of Abraham too. We need to hang on that and notice two things that, that are going to go in the, in the direction of the general and the specific. Or the general and the particular. We're going to think through the general and the particular because that's where I think that's where the sweetness of this comes out 
if you've been around the church at all, you've heard this story. And so you kind of know it. But we got to, I think, stop there and, and, and soak in it for a minute. And this is where we should soak, at this little phrase right here, because we're going to see something general that is sweet and encouraging and should be um, luring, inviting to us. And then on top of that, we see something specific and particular that is even more pointedly precious, I think. So, son of Abraham. He also is a son of Abraham. What, what's he getting at there? Well, first, Jesus is giving, in the general, an alternative perspective on Zacchaeus, telling him how God sees him. The crowd certainly sees him one way. The crowd has an idea. Zacchaeus, you remember, he's, he's a chief tax collector, which means, and a rich one at that, which means that he excelled at what everybody knew tax collectors did. They legally robbed people blind. And he's been really, really good at that. He's rich. He's a high up, rich thief, protected by law. And so everybody knows that about him. They, they see him in a way and they call him a sinner, someone repugnant and beyond redemption, a bad person. This is, this is not that everybody sins or we're all sinners. This is, yes, people sin, he's a sinner. It's a label of beyond the pale. He's a bad person, a sinner worthy only of judgment and curse from God. Not blessing, not salvation, not deliverance into the kingdom of God, not blessing, not, not hope. God promised, they're thinking, this is all total Jewish audience here, they're thinking God promised to our father Abraham and to Isaac and Jacob and his faithful sons and daughters, his faithful children after him, the kingdom in which he would come to us and bring us all this blessing. And that one right there is not worthy of that. He has stepped beyond that one too many times, one too far. He's a sinner, Zacchaeus. He's not one of us anymore. That's their perspective. Common. That's how people judge other people. You know, here's the line. I'm, I'm on this, just barely perhaps, but I'm on this side of the good line, and other people are on that side of the, of the good line. And the fact that Jesus associates with them and goes over to stay at his house is just, they're grumbling complaining. That's a, that's a sign of they're judging Jesus for this as well. The world rejects such people as Zacchaeus, but Jesus does not and deliberately seeks him out in particular and brings salvation to him since he also is a son of Abraham. What he's saying is that he is not, he is not crossed over the line beyond hope. No, he also, he too, is here in this spot, a target of God's mercy, of God's love, like was promised to Abraham. He is lost, for sure. We get a little tension right here. Because if the world in one sense pushes people to, you know, bad beyond hope, evil and wicked, Maybe the other direction people push them is, we're all pretty good and we're all okay. No such thing as lostness, as condemnation, judgment. I'm sure that's what you're saying, right? If he's not bad, then he's good, like all of us. No. 
James Deacon saved the lost. If, if you've been following it all through Luke, realize that lostness is real. There is such a thing as separation from God, distance from God, being lost and unable to find one way, one's own way back by one's own deeds. It's real. There are lost sheep, lost coins, that lost people. And the crowd's problem is that they divide some into good and bad. Jesus, in fact, says everybody's lost. I mean, we're all, we're all lost. The Bible's testimony again and again is we all start out in the same place, away. And that's why he came, not to judge the lost, though judgment is real. Judgment is real, but it's not now. The Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. He's here on that mission to seek out and save the lost. And if we look at that, this is the general point, if we look at that and, and stop and ponder it, here we have a man who is, in the eyes of the world, bad, and what Jesus uses this opportunity to say is he, he's not beyond hope. He's one of those kinds of people that I came for. The lost. There's something sweet there about the heart of God. There's something, just stop and, and think in that. There is something that is deep and reassuring even. God sees people as lost, and God sent the Son of Man for people who are lost. Remember, what we just saw in the previous chapter, if you hear that phrase, Son of Man, and you, it might pop in your mind that I think we just said that same phrase last week, the Son of Man. is going to be, as he said, going to be handed over and beaten and shamed and killed and then raised. That's why the Son of Man was sent. And the Son of Man was sent to seek and save the lost. The Son of Man was sent to seek and save the lost in his being handed over and shamed and beaten and killed and raised. This is what he's about. He's come to die to save people who are lost and without him cannot be found. We think on this. The reassurance there is that there is no one, including you, who has gone too far. You may, you may feel that. You may get that from other people, maybe even other people who go to church. Because of you, your choices, your, your lifestyle, your actions, your thoughts, your words, you are, you know, God looks at you only angry and just you know, can't wait till you die and he can drop the hammer on you. The heart of God is a, a heart that says, lostness is real. And I have acted to send my son to, to redeem people from that. I take no pleasure in the death of the wicked. So turn. This is the heart of God. No one is too lost or too bad. 
And when you see this, you see this about Jesus, you see this, this attitude of going to hang out with the people that constantly doing this, with, he's with the prostitutes, with the tax collectors, with the sinners in society. You see that heart in him. What should rise up in you is, that's when I should go investigate. I should go check out such a one. This is a Jesus who says, you too come. And the cross works. Your sin also can be removed. That's how we should view ourselves and the guy or gal next to us, how we should view our neighbors. This attitude of God is one of the key elements that undercuts judgmentalism in people. If we think about it, if we remember it, about ourselves and about others, too often we come across as, and maybe it's because sometimes we are, we who are in the church are judgmental of sinners. And we call them sinners, maybe in word or in attitude. And we, we can't give away, we can't release, well, then there, there's no such, thing, no such thing as lostness? No, there is. We've got to hold on to that too. But we've got to hold on to what we're seeing right here in Jesus, that he's willing to go hang out with this guy. And he says, no, he too is in, is in the realm of the possible blessing. He's not, a, he's not thrown away. Come for people like him. And so that, if we, we catch that, that's the power in us that's behind, like the Sermon on the Mount. Love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. Be kind to the just and to the wicked alike, like your Father in heaven is. We treat people with kindness and with mercy, enemies and friends alike, like our Father does. We call them all to come to this Jesus. His heart is one of pursuing lost people. That's the first element of this phrase, he also is the son of man. He's not out, he also is in. But if we, if we just stop there, there's, there's something more we need to explore, and it's in this, the half of this that's particular or specific. Because, we keep thinking about this, let me, let me approach it kind of in this way, somebody may ask a question, okay, so we could ask a couple of questions, but one that may come to mind is, okay, so he's also a son of man, and so if Jesus is saying that he's within the realm, they're thinking he's outside of the realm of the blessings of the covenant of Abraham, and Jesus is saying, no, he's inside and a possible recipient of those blessings of the covenant of Abraham, well, that's all great and fine for him, but I'm not Jewish, nor are most people. So how does this apply? If he's having a discussion about is he in or out of, of this family line of Abraham, I'm out, I think. So what does it matter? Well, we've got to think about that a little bit. This is where it gets particular. And it could get, uh, it, it could get deep quickly. So I'm going to try not to do that. There are a lot of things that we could talk about. As soon as you bring up Abraham and covenant, I mean, you know, the gate's open. 
We could talk about a lot of things, but I'm not going to. I'm going to try to keep it, I think, not too far afield, kind of narrow and, and clear. Who are the sons of Abraham? Those who receive the blessings of the covenant made with Abraham. Well, obviously, the sons of Abraham is a way of saying the descendants of Abraham, the family line, the family tree, the lineage of Abraham. Who is that? And this is the critical piece. That lineage, that family tree is not racially, ethnically limited. That's the big point. It's not racially, ethnically limited. Think of what John the Baptist said in Luke 3. To unrepentant, but ethnically Jewish people. He's having a discussion there with ethnically Jewish people. And he says, do not say, as they're trying to say, we have Abraham as our father. They're trying to say, it doesn't matter what I do. I'm ethnically, racially related to Abraham. I'm good. I'm an object of the blessings. And he says, no, do not say we have Abraham as our father, for I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children for Abraham. John the Baptist there is saying the line of Abraham is indeed where the blessing lies, but it is not racially, ethnically limited. He can make rocks children of Abraham. Or consider then what Jesus himself says in John 8 or Paul in Romans 4. What do they say there? That the sons and daughters of Abraham are those who respond to God like Abraham. Not those who have the blood of Abraham, those who respond to God like father, like son. Those who respond to God like Abraham, that is, in faith towards Christ. Jew or Gentile. Both. Not all Jews and all Gentiles, not all the world. We're talking about a specific group here, the sons of Abraham, not the sons of Adam. That'd be all the world. Sons of Abraham, but they can be Jew and Gentile both. Some Jewish people and some Gentile people both are sons of Abraham. And Jesus was sent to seek and save all the lost sons of Abraham, those that the Father gave to him. And the prayer from John 17. From whatever tongue, tribe, race, or people they may be, he is after them all, one by one, in particular. In a particular, loving, gracious pursuit by God. Though neither Zacchaeus nor his neighbors had any idea of this until it happened. Not until the moment that it happened. But God had planned it from eternity past. Jesus knows who Zacchaeus is. Jesus knows what city he lives in. What tree he's perched in and the date of his reservation at Hotel Zacchaeus. I must go there today. It's necessary that I go to your house today and that I remain there, that I bring salvation there, for you too are a son of Abraham, though you didn't know it. 
I have been sent to seek and save lost you and the rest of the ones the Father has given to me, and I always accomplish the mission of my Father. The general, God has a heart of pursuit, and the specific, God pursues people individually, particularly. He chases them down in their neighborhoods and their houses and, and their places of work and their universities and their families. He's after particular people and he calls you by name. So we see the general that the heart of God is an, is an open arm to come all of you. Jesus repeatedly throughout Luke speaks to massive crowds without any distinction. Everyone. That's always the promise. Come all of you to me and anyone who comes I will give you life. And then we also see that in particular, he goes to individuals and says, you. He's pursuing particular people like you. Well, how can you tell? How do you know? Do you have ears to hear? Do you have eyes to see? If as you hear this and as you see this, you say, yes, then by reverse reasoning, you realize, oh, I have eyes to see because you opened my eyes. You're in my house. I welcomed you in joyfully. I received you in joyfully because you came to the tree and you pointed at me and called me. This particular pursuit, there is a unique power in this. Again, as you, as you sit in this and and. Soak in it. There's a, a particular unique power to produce joy and confidence in us. That joy and confidence that is necessary for the surrendered heart that we'll come to in a moment. This is what caused joy and surrender in, in Zacchaeus here. He responds to his pursuit. So do, do you realize, do you sit you sit and realize, maybe in the moments when it's hardest to, to lay down your life, do you, do you sit and realize, think back, if you will, to the moment when you were in your metaphorical tree and Jesus called you. That happened because of Jesus. It seemed to me that I went down to the parade route and that I ran ahead and climbed in the tree because I wanted to see. I was seeking. But in retrospect, he stopped at the tree and called me by name and said he had to come to my house because he was first seeking me. He's been after me from long before I knew it. And if he was after you from long before you knew it and he, and he caught up to you and captured you and drew you to himself, is he now in this moment going to rip you off and abandon you? Leave you to the world and to your destruction? No, Christian, no. No. This particular pursuit of God for you is, is, a, is a strong motivator for, for a confident laying down of life. I can trust this one. He sought me. That is good news. That is good news. 
He says, from eternity past, I've been pursuing you. I was cut off and ostracized and shamed and killed so that you would not be. I came to seek you, to die for you, to give you life. And I have loved you with this everlasting, past everlasting love, and I am now drawing you to myself with cords just like these, cords that show you who I am, how I love you, how I promise to give you life and stay with you. I pull you to me. I draw you. Do you see that? Do you respond in a way that is a laying down of life, which is the next point? The second observation. Put in the form of question and answer. Do you have eyes to see this Savior? Then rejoice and receive him in and lay down your life. Do you have eyes to see this Savior? Then rejoice and receive him in. And I mean that both in the way of maybe for the first time become a Christian, receive him in. But I also mean that, as we'll see, in a day by day by day, receive him in rather than hold him off. Receive him in and lay down your life. That's the fitting response of the passage. What we see in Zacchaeus and have had urged on us all throughout Luke, Jesus approaches, speaks, seeks out Zacchaeus, and we see Zacchaeus willingly and joyfully responding to Jesus. The text makes a point, actually, of, of mirroring the phrases here, repeating words. Jesus commands, hurry and come down. I must stay at your house. And Zacchaeus responds joyfully. He hurried and came down and received him into his house. Jesus commands, Zacchaeus does. That's hinted at right there. But that, that's noteworthy, but not nearly so amazing as what we see in verse 8. Probably back at the house, Zacchaeus' house, maybe after a meal, it's not clear, but he, he stands up, which maybe indicates he was reclined at a meal, and speaks. He makes a pronouncement to Jesus and to whoever else was there. Behold, Lord, half my goods I give to the poor. Half my goods. He's a rich man, so he's got a lot to give. That's amazing, but doubly so given the contrast with the previous passage. One of the unfortunate things about how we preach through the Bible is that sometimes it takes us a little while to move through things, and then if a holiday or something unusual happens, we put some more time in there. And so it's maybe been a little while since we were just in the previous chapter where the rich ruler met Jesus and had a conversation, and Jesus said to him, here's the thing you lack, give away everything you have to the poor and come follow me. Give away everything you have to the poor and come follow me. And that man said, no. Exposing his heart in the process, which was the point. But he said, no. As I think about it, I'd rather have the wealth than you, Jesus. As it comes down to it, I don't see that as a good trade-off. You're saying I could have you or this. Sorry. 
And he walked away, kept all his stuff. And then next chapter, we have another wealthy man of authority. And here, voluntarily, without being called to it, I'm going to use my wealth to love the least of these, the poor. I'm going to give away everything. Well, not, I should half of what I have because I got to do something else with the other half. I'm going to give away half my wealth to the poor, and with the other half, something else. Pointed repentance. Because he knows that he's defrauded others. They all know it. That's why they call him a sinner. That's the source of wealth. So he's going to make restitution by the most stringent requirements of the law. He's going to give back fourfold what he stole to everybody. This is going to take a little while. He's repenting, making right what he made wrong without being commanded to do so. Willingly so. It's just coming out of him. These two actions, in the end, are probably going to leave him with nothing. In effect, what he's saying is, Lord, here. Here's me. All of me on the table. All of my life laid down. He looks at this life you have, Jesus, and he says, Jesus. I want him. He believes that's worth it. And he gives away his life so as to find life. And he dies to self and takes up his cross. You remember that from earlier in Luke 9. And it is not grudgingly. It is not reluctantly that he does this. It is willingly, happily, joyfully. This is the mark of a changed person. We see it again and again. The end of the last chapter, the blind beggar sees and what happens? He follows Jesus glorifying God. Previous chapter, the leper is healed. When he realizes he's healed, what happens? The leper is made clean and he returns back glorifying God and falls on his face before Jesus and gives him thanks and loud praise. Again and again and again throughout Luke, what is put before us is the fitting and natural and right response of a person who sees that he's been made clean, sees that he's been healed, sees that sin has been taken off of him. What the appropriate, right, natural response is seeing that here. Here's me. All of me. That's what Luke, that's what God through Luke is calling us to consistently to with word and, and with, with attitude to rejoice and give thanks and glorify God. With word and attitude, yes, but in particular, with the actions, the details of our lives. It's a fitting and right act of worship that we lay all of our lives on the altar in front of him, not just say, you are wonderful, Lord. But do here. Can't say it's one of my favorite possessions. 
not my, my favorite musicians, but there is a musician who sings about how we should view our possessions and everything else. Some of you know Lecrae. He's got an old song. There's a line in this, in this rap. He's a rapper. Which is why I can't say he's one of my favorite musicians. But maybe you know him. It, rap is... <laughs> Christian rap is... <laughs> sometimes theologically brilliant. I think one of the advantages of it is that it's got a, a chance to have a lot more words. I mean, we sing songs here, we've got, I mean, probably like 15 words sometimes. We, we do a better job of that here in this church, but sometimes we've got songs that are really few words repeated a lot. Sometimes you get rap that's got hundreds of words. There's one song that has one line that goes something like, our money our possessions, our time are all loaned to us to show the world that Christ is divine. Our money, our possessions, our time. Here we see it, Zacchaeus, it's money. It may be money for us, but it might be your, your time for you. But the fitting and right response, seeing this Jesus, the fitting and right response is not just, Lord, you are worthy. Worthy are you? Worthy of what? Worthy of my life. I mean, you can't have it, but worthy of it. No, it's loaned to you. It's given to you to, to, to do this and show the world that Christ is divine. How does that show the world that, that Jesus is Jesus? Well, it shows the world in, in a couple ways. It shows the world first in my declaration so that I'm willing, I want Jesus, not the stuff. That's not how the world thinks. But it also shows the world that Jesus is Jesus by saying, how did that guy's heart get changed like that? Not by willpower. There's something in him that, that changed. Now, maybe for some of us, giving away our money is, is not the thing. That would not require much change because I really don't, don't care about possessions that much. But what you care about is your time or maybe your relationships or maybe, maybe how you think about dating and sexuality, maybe how you think about politics Whatever it is that is the thing that, you, that is you, that somebody were to look at that and say, he gave that up? He put that at the feet of Jesus? How did that happen? And not just, like I thought that works, like grudgingly, like twisted out of him, his dues. No, he gave it willingly, joyfully, happily. He put his life at the feet of this who? This Jesus? What? The world needs to see that in us. And we need to be like that. We are called to be like that constantly in Luke. The fitting, right, natural response. See who this Jesus is. This Jesus that seeks out people who are lost, who sought out you. What comes from that naturally? Repeatedly, what comes from that in, the, in this gospel is praise and glory and thanks and a laid-down life. Jesus says, if you want to follow me, lay down your life. Take up your cross and follow me. So is that what your life is like? 
probably yes and no. It's fitting and natural, it's right. Called for repeatedly, seen here in Zacchaeus. And if you were to look at any one of our lives, you'd probably say it's a little bit there and a little bit not. There's a gap. What do you do about that? Not give more. Not give more of your time, give more of your money, give more, give more of your relationships, give more of your whatever. Not, not give more, not first at least. You've got to follow the order of this. The first thing you do is say, Lord, help me to see this Jesus. Because it is impossible for a person who actually, actually sees, who grasps, understands. I was lost and I have been found. I was condemned and I have been released and redeemed and more than that, raised up and exalted and blessed. It is impossible for a person who sees that to not be happy about it. More than happy, joyful. And it is impossible for a person who has been made a new creation and actually sees it, sees it with the mind's eye so clearly that it's vivid to you, that actually sees, I have been made new. I am not a slave to sin. I don't have to go that way. And in fact, I have been given power to go a different way. And this different way is where my life lies actually sees that to not actually have different desires it's impossible to not be a different person it's impossible for a person who has been promised a future and who sees it to live sold to locked into the present The first thing you have to do is not try to climb into the future, try to climb into obedience, gin up happiness. The first thing you must do, spirit open my eyes and show me Jesus. This Savior who sought me out when I was lost, blind, running an enemy. That's how God grows us. God grows us by showing us Christ, by showing us Christ's goodness, by showing us his pursuing heart in particular of us first and all that that means for our now and for our future and then says, follow me. And the heart that sees that by the Spirit's work of illumination, the heart that sees that says, where, to where, here I go. Because that's where my life is. So the thing we have to do, Christian, the, the thing we have to do when we notice that gap, this is the fitting and right response, and you can't read Luke and not see that. The fitting and right response is a rejoicing and a laying down of my life. And the thing we have to do when we notice the gap between what's fitting and right and true is say, Lord, open my eyes and show me Christ. Show me this Savior who was sent to seek and save me, who has made eternity different for me. 
has secured it for me apart from my works all by his who lives in me now and will never abandon me, never leave me nor forsake me, but has promised to walk with me and carry me home. Spirit, I got to open my eyes and show me this Jesus and then move me to follow his decrees. That's the blessing of the new covenant in the Old Testament. It's the blessing of the new covenant realized for you now, the spirit given to show you Jesus and move you to follow his decrees. So look to him. Seek him where he is to be found. And he'll grow you. This is for your good, for his glory, and, and, and for the salvation of the nations who need to see a people who are happy in Jesus. Let me pray. Lord, you are our treasure and we, in our honesty, our, our disappointed honesty, reckon that sometimes we don't know that. So please show us your beauty, your worth, your value. Would you open our eyes? Spirit of God, open our eyes. Show us the depth of your goodness and the depth of our security. And move us to follow you with a laid down life. Be honored in that way in us. Thank you. Thank you that you are a God who seeks and saves. Help us to see also. Thank you, Lord. Amen. Thank you for listening to this message by Pastor Steve Clark of the Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City in Salt Lake City, Utah. Feel free to make copies of this message to give to others, but please do not charge for these copies or alter the content in any way without permission. We invite you to visit our website at www.slcebfree.org or call us directly at area code 801-943-0091. Our mailing address is Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City, 6515 South Lion Lane, Salt Lake City, Utah, 84121.